Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. A new month is upon us, ladies and gentlemen, and it's time for a new perspective on life and indeed on the world. With any luck, the coronavirus infection rates are on a downward trend. Hospital admissions are also down. And in time, the numbers of people dying will also start to diminish. All the better for the government to start listening to the experts, those brilliant, well-educated and highly trained individuals who are now examining the evidence and coming to conclusions. After all, that's what the government's been doing, right? Today, the Institute for Fiscal Studies says the cost of lost schooling on a generation of children will be a staggering £350 billion. Only yesterday, the Mental Health Foundation revealed that more than a quarter of teenagers are showing symptoms of anxiety and depression. I've been talking about this for weeks and weeks and weeks. Finally, somebody uh, has told the scientists to start actually looking into it again. Uh, For heaven's sake, I mean, after all, over the weekend, I've received dozens of messages from parents who are worried about their own children, who they are seeing becoming more and more withdrawn and isolated. We'll be addressing this all throughout the show this morning, but we will also be checking in with Lee Anderson, Tory MP for Ashfield, to get his take on the ongoing lockdown, immigration controls, and when we reopen the schools. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up later on, Peter Hitchens joins us for his weekly conversation about the state we are in. This weekend, he wrote in his Mail on Sunday column about how he feels the United Kingdom is in grave danger of being ripped asunder by Scottish and Welsh nationalism. We'll be asking him why. And also, Inaya Follower and Iman is here with a new free speech union project aimed at university students and protecting their rights to free speech. 0344 499 1000. We'll also be finding out what's likely to happen if the Myanmar coup continues and what, if anything, we are likely to do about it. Plus, Royal Author Angela Levin will be here to talk us through the latest news uh, from the Duke and Duchess of Privacy. Apparently, they've been changing their names over in California. Who knew uh, that Prince Harry had about 85 different names? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let's kick the week off with something very, very special. We're going to speak to Lee Anderson, Conservative MP for Ashfield, who we haven't spoken to for quite some time. Lee, a very good morning to you. Welcome back. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Uh, It's good to be back on on the home of common sense. Let's have some common sense for the next 10 minutes. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's keep that common sense going all week, quite frankly, Lee. I mean, there's a lot of things to be said for uh, what's been going on since you and I last spoke. Uh, Obviously, we're seeing, and we've been talking about this a lot here at Talk Radio, uh, the problem for children, the problem for parents, the problem for schools. You know, we're now beginning to see what real uh, damage is being done by keeping the schools closed. What do you think we can do to put enough pressure on the government to try and get them to reopen them? Well, I mean, the good news is now uh, government have, have sort, sort of made a, a commitment to get children back uh, in March. Uh, there's a lot of us in Parliament, to be honest with you, Mike, really pushing for this. Mm. It's important that we must, you know, we must remember that it's not only the education for our children, it's the, it's the mental health, but it's, it's the well-being it's all part of growing up. Now, I'm a little bit fed up that our kids are being locked away at home. 
they're not learning about the the dangers and risks that, that you know that growing up is, is part of. You know, I go back to my my um, childhood growing up, playing football, climbing trees, getting in trouble, pinching apples, that sort of stuff. You know, a, a child's life is full of risks and dangers, and we're running the risk of, of bringing our children children up in a sterile society at the moment. And that that doesn't bear well for when they grow up and become adults and enter the workplace. We've, we're protecting them far too much. They, they they're not stupid. Our kids. I speak to eleven year olds on a regular basis about the uh, the social distancing, about the virus, and let me tell you, they're pretty clued up. So the quicker we can get them back to school uh, and learning for both, you know, both their their and getting their physical health right and their mental health right and, and increasing their prospects when they leave school, the better for me. Yes, I mean, it seems to me as well that, once again, the scientists are uh, sort of in disagreement about what should be done. The Labour Party are asking for people uh, to start vaccinating teachers at half term around about the middle of February. Um, the government are saying that their uh, uh, scientific advice is that there's no point in actually um, vaccinating teachers. What do you think? Well, first and foremost, we've got some brilliant teachers, staff, and, and brilliant parents, Mike, who want the kids back at school. But, you know, at this moment in time, you mentioned the Labour Party, but I want to touch on the unions and especially the leaders of the NEU. I think they should resign and give the job to someone who really cares about our kids' future rather than their own political vendettas. It's all well and good them paying themselves £180,000 a year salary, but what about the prospects of our children who will be lucky to earn a tenth of that in places like Ashfield? They should be ashamed and they should apologise today. They really should. And that's what I think most parents are coming to the conclusion of. I mean, I was getting an awful lot of messages over the course of this weekend alone, partly because of the Sunday Times piece, which I retweeted, about the terrible kind of toll that it's taking on individual kids, you know. I mean, I've got teenagers and you can see that, the, you know, they're not enjoying themselves. They're not able to see their friends. They're frustrated. Uh, they become withdrawn. You know, they sleep later and later. You know, homeschooling is no substitute for them for them going in. We hear this morning from the Institute for Fiscal Studies that the cost of lost schooling could be as much as £350 billion. Pounds. Absolutely right, Mike. You know, it's, it's, it's lost prospects as well for our children in the future. They're, they've missed out now on probably a year's education. The quicker we get them back, the better. And like I said before, I've got 11-year-olds in Ashfield who know all the rules. They know how to keep safe, yet union officials uh, and the Labour front bench claim the rules are confusing. And the only thing that is confusing is how these clowns are still in a job. Let's get our kids back to school. Yeah, absolutely right. Let's talk a little bit as well about the uh, the lockdown. I mean, we've heard over the weekend uh, sort of positive noises about the summer. Uh, Matt Hancock saying that we could have a great British summer. I mean, it would seem as though at the moment we're heading in the right direction in terms of the numbers of infections going down, the numbers of hospital admissions going down. Are you sort of optimistically about, you know, what we can start doing from, say, I don't know, middle to the end of February? Yeah, I live in hope, Mike. Now, it's always been the case uh, since we got the vaccine that we we targeting the priority groups, uh, the people that are most at risk from dying. Now, we, we are actually flying through these at the moment and we should get them all done by the, the middle of February, then move on to the next priority group. So then we've got no excuse, really, um, um, as a government. We've got no excuse. We need to start opening up parts of society safely to make sure we don't get another spike. But, you know, we've, we've, we've been promising people all along the vaccination is the way out of this pandemic. So once we've vaccinated people, 
We need to open up as soon as possible. It's affecting my mental health. It's affecting my missus's mental health. She's sick to death of seeing me. Mm, she wants yeah. me out of the house. Well, this is it. I mean, you know, with the best will in the world and without wishing to sound unkind to anyone, people who uh, live together need to spend some time apart. Otherwise, they go nuts. Absolutely, Mike. You know, it, it's, it's really testing times. You know, my wife's in the um, clinically vulnerable. She has to stop in a lot. Um, I'm not down in Westminster. So, you know, there are times when we're getting on each other's nerves. We feel like we're imprisoned. We need to get out with his own network of friends. And that's been taken away. But it's important we get these vaccinations sorted, like I say, get the priority groups done, then we've got no excuse. Yeah, exactly right. And as far as this um, this sort of term of Parliament is concerned, I mean, obviously there's there's plenty else going on. I wanted to ask you as well, Lee, about the whole business of uh, the immigration controls. Priti Patel has been making an awful lot of noise about sorting out um, the people coming to this country on uh, dinghies from across the channel. Um, That doesn't seem to have stopped uh, as yet. It still seems to be going on. We saw over the weekend a fire uh, at Napier Barracks down near Folkestone, uh, where the the uh, asylum seekers decided upon themselves to set fire to the lodgings that they were being put in. Um, and apparently they've now been moved. I mean, how confident are you that this is ever going to stop? Well, I mean, the scenes, Mike, at Napier Barracks, absolutely disgraceful. You know what? If, if them barracks are good enough for our soldiers to live in, yeah. then surely they're good enough for people who are, who are supposedly fleeing persecution. Mm. But the good news is, you know, I've banged on about this before, there is new legislation coming. Uh, it's a big piece of legislation. And I spoke about this before on your show, which we'll see um, genuine asylum seekers. You know, they will have a case. But people leaving safe countries like France, in my mind, are not genuine asylum seekers. And this new bit of legislation will see them sent straight back. And rightly so. Yes. And I mean, hopefully that will be something that can be taken care of. Because as I say, Pretty Patel talks a good game. I'd like to support what she wants to do. Um, but until she does it, it's a bit difficult to believe what she's saying. Well, it is difficult, but you have to realise, Mike, that the legislation that's being worked on at the moment is a massive piece of legislation, probably one of the biggest pieces of legislation that we'll see in this parliament. And we have to make sure it's watertight. We've Mm. got, you know, 25 years of of our asylum system being abused by the lefty lawyers who have made an absolute packet out of it. We need to make sure that once it's in place, nobody can abuse it and and the the people traffickers that are taking advantage of, of our asylum laws know straight away they're wasting the time coming here they'll have to go somewhere else absolutely now i haven't been on air since the extraordinary um uh, developments on friday night with the european union i mean you were electedly uh, back in december of uh, 2019 on a huge wave of people uh, in your part of the world who wanted to leave the european union wanted to get brexit done thankfully that's now happened we've now left the eu and thank god after what they tried to do on friday night well you know some people will say that the mask has slipped but it hasn't slipped we knew all along uh, the, the, the EU uh, uh, are bully boys, they're, they're protectionists, they were always put there, put, put the EU above everybody else in the world. Um, and Friday night, quite frankly, Mike, I was disgusted, mm. but they backtracked pretty quickly. Uh, we stood firm, um, and fair play to Boris and the government, you know, we, we've played a blinder with the vaccines. And uh, just think if we'd have stopped in the EU uh, and we'd have been part of the, the vaccination mm. uh, program, we'd have probably vaccinated about, you know, half a million people by now, not the nine or ten million people that we're already on. So fair play to our government. It's about time somebody did actually pat Boris on the back. He's done really well on on this one. And also, doesn't it prove um, how ghastly these individuals are? You know, they spend four or five years telling us about how they can't foresee uh, any possibility of a hard border in Northern Ireland. Then they try and impose one. 
Well, it's just spiteful. Yeah. Uh, they've seen, you know, we, we had all these this project failed, all these stories that how the UK was going to fail. And we're not failing. We're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, and, and we lead in the world uh, in, in vaccinations. We, 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 lead, we lead in the world with, 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 uh, with, with ordering the vaccinations. And the, and the EU sat back looking at us and thinking, you know what? The UK, aren't, they're doing okay at the moment. And, and what are we doing? They're doing pretty poorly. So they should, you know, look to the UK and maybe apply to join the UK. Uh, well, yeah, absolutely right. And there's certainly going to be plenty of disregard uh, for the European Commission, I believe, inside different uh, individual European countries who are looking at what they're doing and saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, you are now actively stopping us from getting vaccines. As I've seen, I think Germany and Italy now are ordering their own vaccines over and above what they're being granted by the EU. Well, yeah, so much for the uh, the, the collectiveness of the EU, Mark. And also there's Lots of unrest in France at the moment. That's yeah. going to be interesting. Elections coming up there. They're all looking at the UK and thinking, you know what? They're, they're, they're going alone. They seem to be doing OK. Mm. We are doing OK. Uh, what's the point of the EU? Yeah. I, I see very little point in it at the moment. It seems to be an ex very ex extremely expensive uh, anomaly. Uh, it doesn't seem to work very well. Uh, all it seems to do is produce an awful lot of um, minor bureaucrats who become incredibly powerful uh, and who cost us a lot of money. You're absolutely right, Mark. It's a, it's a gravy train. I've, I've never, you know, I never had a problem with with the UK being in the common market as such. But the political union, the gravy train, the jobs for the boys it creates. It's in my mind, it's it, it's just like watching FIFA. It's a corrupt organisation mm. for 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 white middle aged men who are taking big pots of money out, big pensions, and sod everybody else. Yeah. Talking of uh, of politicians milking the system, what did you make of that story at the weekend about Labour's shadow cabinet, who have claimed thousands of pounds in expenses since last year's lockdown, including uh, our good friend Angela Rayner, who's apparently spent 1,600 quid on 23 first-class trips? I mean, you know, I don't understand why we should be paying for her to travel first class. She spends her life calling Tory members scum. Uh, she tries to get people silenced on the back benches. Um, and now it turns out that she likes to travel around, uh, but doesn't want to hang about with a hoi polloi. Well, it's it's the typical champagne socialist again, Mark, isn't it? Mm. I mean, th this is the Labour front bench for you. They, they say they are against private schools that send their children to private schools. Uh, and, and the Angela Rayner thing is another typical example. Look, I travel down to London on a regular basis, and let me tell you, during lockdown, you can have a carriage, a second-class carriage, whatever they call it, completely to yourself. Yeah. There's no excuse to be travelling in first class at all, and it sends you know the wrong message out. But hey, Angela, keep it up. It, it's it's actions like that that keep people like me in, in a labour area. Uh, in a job. Yeah, exactly right. Lucy Powell has thought uh, a great idea would be to charge us for a TV licence. I don't know what her view is on people over 65 having to pay for it or go to prison, uh, but she charges us for a TV licence. Well, you know, I've I've cancelled my TV licence. Uh, don't Top pay bad. for one. It's, it's, it's a complete waste of money. Uh, I'm not paying for, for an organisation that is quite openly anti-government. And quite openly anti-British. So, I mean, Lucy can do what she wants, but mine's in the bin and that's where it's staying. And when the bailiffs knock on my door, they'll be told to clear off. <laughs> Very wise indeed. And finally, Lisa Nandy, another one who likes to virtue signal right, left and centre. Uh, £20 for her on hand sanitizer. Yeah, well, the only thing northern about Lisa, I think, at the moment is her accent. But everything else goes back to Islington. Yeah, um, I didn't see too many people like her up in Wigan last time I was there. No, um, 
and I think she came to Ashfield uh, just after the elections, knocking on doors on the council estate, asking people uh, why they voted for me instead of Labour. Right. Now, she should have probably done that before the election <laughs> uh, or, or just asked me. And yeah. I told her why, because you've actually betrayed the working class in, in places like Ashfield. You've ignored them over Brexit and you actually have nothing in common with them anymore. No, exactly right. And how are the good people of Ashfield coping with the lockdown, Lee? Is it is it is a, a town sort of deserted? I mean, we I mean, we living in London obviously don't always get the right impression of what's happening in the rest of the country. But there's an awful lot of people who want to be going back yeah. to work, who want to have a chance to make a living, who want to be able to live a relatively normal life again. It is deserted, Mark. It's sad, but I think people in Ashfield and, and probably in the rest of the country are resigned to the fact now that we've got this vaccination programme in place. You know, we've got this lockdown, hopefully our final lockdown. They can see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And when, and when Matt Hancock's saying things like we're going to have a nice summer, that gives me hope and it gives the people of Ashfield hope as well. Yeah, absolutely right. Lee, great to talk to you again. When are you next back down in the uh, in the house? Because it's a sort of rotor basis now, is it? Talking because in case any of us have a, a mishap and we end up in hospital, we're just going to put um, more more stress on the NHS in London. I don't want to do that. So at the moment, it's all Zoom, Teams meetings and, and stuff like this. But I want to get back down as soon as possible and, and do the job I'm paid to do. Absolutely right. Well, great to talk to you and keep up the good work. Lee Anderson, Conservative MP for Ashfield, one of the new crop of MPs. We spotted him uh, late last year as one of the good guys, one of the men who speaks an awful lot of common sense and who speaks from the heart and who speaks for the real working people of this country. Not Angela Rayner with her £1,600 with a first-class rail travel. Um, not people who charge their television licence to the taxpayer. And not Lisa Nan who is, of course, the uh, Shadow Foreign Secretary, who charges us 20 quid for hand sanitizer? Don't you think you could afford that yourself, Lisa? Don't you think you could have possibly paid for it just on your own? Because that's what everybody else has to do. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We all awoke this morning to the news that there had been some kind of military coup in Myanmar. Uh, we can speak now to Dr Alan Mendoza, founder and executive director of the Henry Jackson Society. We've seen uh, Boris Johnson uh, condemning the action. We've seen all sorts of world leaders condemning the action. We've even seen Ursula von der Leyen uh, condemning it from the European Union. The question is, though, what if nobody does anything about it? What if the uh, troops remain in charge? Aung San Suu Kyi remains uh, behind closed doors? Doors, either in uh, prison or under house arrest. Uh, what do we do then, if anything? Uh, Alan, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much um, indeed for joining us. I mean, you know, it's been pretty troubled, hasn't it, Myanmar? It's history recently. I mean, Aung San Suu Kyi only just got out uh, of house arrest, it seems, uh, the other day. I mean, I know it's probably longer ago than that. Uh, but now she's back under uh, some kind of uh, constraint again. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a country that endured 50 years of, uh, of military rule. Uh, it had become an international pariah by the end of that um, process, by the end of that stage. And, of course, there were hopes that uh, with the return of democracy, uh, Myanmar could be put on a path of normality. And, it, it, you know, in, in certain ways, it looked like that was happening. In other ways, though, the army never gave up control, which is why this is so so bizarre. They've decided to take power in a coup. They they, they actually rigged the constitution essentially to keep control of lots of the country. Um, they were engaged, of course, in war crimes against the Rohingya, which unfortunately Aung San Suu Kyi uh, you know, sort of covered up with them. Uh, to, this move, in one sense, makes no sense because they're in a sense turning back the clock to an era where they only half ever left. 
Yes, exactly right. And so as far as the actual response is concerned, I mean, obviously, we've done all the right things. Every country will do it, you know, condemning the action, talking about how uh, the, the, the election appears to have been democratic and it shouldn't be the way to run a country. But what if they don't pay any attention to any of that? What happens then? Well, they probably won't um, in the sense that they, they've, as I've said already, it's almost inexplicable why they did this, given the uh, the safeguards they already had within the Constitution that they had drawn up to maintain power. So they clearly have some objective they want to achieve um, in the year they claim they'll be in power. Um, I suspect in their case, it's something as simple as we just don't like foreigners. Mm. We don't like having opened up to the world. Um, we quite liked being isolated. We don't, you know, we don't see any benefit to it. We're going to reset the clock, basically. And mm. it's, you know, we won't have the power to transform that point of view. What we do have the power, of course, to do is to punish malefactors in the sense of saying, you're not going to get away with it. Whatever you do, any anyone who you harm, we will hold you personally accountable with sanctions, with potential, um, you know, kind of criminal proceedings in the day. We will put sanctions on the country, etc. But there's there's not much more you can do than that. No, quite. I mean, in terms of sanctions, I mean, what is it that they would get from us, as it were, in Western Europe uh, or indeed from the US? Because it might be an interesting test, of course, of foreign policy for Joe Biden early on in his presidency. Well, yeah, not very much. I mean, the reality is their big trading partners, China. Um, so what you're but, but that said, you know, the country was opening up. You had seen investment patterns. People were looking to, uh, you know, kind of look into a country which had been cut off from the world. You know, there are very few of these countries left, if you think about it, countries that hadn't been really part of the international trading system in a major way with, with significant populations, uh, with young populations who can sort of end up becoming, uh, you know, countries that can supply um, goods to the West and beyond. So there was interest in um, investment in the country. That can all, all those uh, uh, taps will be turned off straight away. But as long as China is willing to keep on uh, funding and supporting the regime, which it almost certainly will do, uh, there's very little. Um, economic pressure you can even do beyond uh, you know, turning off those taps and making sure they don't get any, any further inroads in the international community. Yeah, absolutely right. And I mean, as far as our kind of um, uh, abilities of uh, diplomacy, I mean, who is it that uh, would you say is their kind of nearest and, and dearest ally? I mean, who could we put pressure on? Well, once again, here's your problem, China. Uh, so, you know, the Chinese see no problem uh, with this sort of approach, as we well know, and they probably welcome it, given their own, of course, autocracy uh, in Beijing and the, and the rule of the military and the rule of the Communist Party. So for them, this is not a problem at all. There's no pressure that can be brought to bear on an undemocratic country that in itself rejects democracy and at the moment is killing democracy in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, you know, it, there is an argument for suggesting maybe there was even collusion here. Um, we don't know yet, of course, but would the military have done this without China's at least, you know, tacit acceptance? Mm. Uh, probably not. Well, so you can imagine that it's very, very it's going to be difficult to pressure um, a non-democracy, which is in itself looking to kill off democracy. No, quite. And as is normally the case in these situations, presumably not everyone in the armed forces is of one mind. Um, is there a chance that perhaps there's an opposing view within the armed forces themselves? Well, you do sometimes see this. Um, a coup occurs of sorts and then it, it sort of unravels or people change their mind. What, what's quite clear is that if you look at the election results, 80 percent of the votes appear to have gone um, to, to, you know, to Aung San Suu Kyi's party and the military have been stuffed. Now, that essentially means that a lot of military families must have voted against the military and must have voted uh, for, uh, you know, de democratic parties. So from that perspective, you've got to figure there is a diversity of opinion going on uh, within the army. And the, the big question, therefore, is 
uh, is there enough of a reform faction to go? You guys have acted, um, you, you're well out of order. Uh, we're going to, you know, have a counter cue, if you like, or persuade, talk you down off the ledge mm. uh, before, you know, kind of go into this full scale. But the early days of a coup are very important because in the first few days, you can reverse things without it being too serious. But mm. if it drags on beyond a certain point, it's it's sort of set in stone. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? And I mean, Aung San Suu Kyi herself has had a rather checkered history, hasn't she? Because she was accused of all the things that she's accused others of doing um, once she got back into power. Well, this is this is a problem, um, not so much from a democratic perspective ruling within Myanmar, but particularly when it comes to the Rohingya. Here, here is an example, a terrible example of where compromising with um, ethnic cleansing will get you. Uh, we all know what's been going on since 2017 uh, with the army leading those uh, leading mobs uh, to, to go and ethnically cleanse uh, Rohingya areas. Uh, she you know, has defended them, supported it, pretending it hasn't happened. Uh, perhaps that was her sort of uh, pact with the military. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone to do whatever you want in that sort of area. But it's come back to bite her mm. very severely. And it reminds you once again, there is no compromising to be done on human rights issues, because if you do, you uh, end up uh, potentially seeing uh, the the people you're uh, you're compromising with turn against you. Well, exactly. And do you think this is the end for her? Because even if the coup is indeed reversed, she'll be presumably under some pressure um, to leave, won't she? No, she's hugely popular in Myanmar. I don't think you, you should underestimate that. I mean, she is the reason they won 80% of the votes. She's seen as a mother of the country. Uh, she is, you know, essentially the daughter of the independence icon, uh, the general who, who died shortly before uh, uh, independence. There's a lot of history located within her and within the family. Um, and it, it's really a question of whether she can mobilise uh, support against the military as well. That's the other thing that might move things. If you do see mass unrest on the streets, that could lead to a, a change of heart as well mm. in the coup. Um, now, again, that would depend on how the military respond to that, but it, it is certainly possible that if, if, if uh, uh, the population decide they're not having this, they're not going to have an election of that magnitude overturned by the military, uh, then you're into you know kind of very dangerous uh, areas. But she would be key, I think, to either uh, you know sort of minimising bloodshed, but also being the figure people will coalesce around. Yes, that's what I'm wondering though, because if there was to be bloodshed uh, and she was to somehow um, try to make a deal, if you like, with the uh, the, the coup uh, managers, surely part of that deal might be that they say to her, "Well, you can't run the country anymore." Well, they, hmm, they've kind of already said that, if you know, uh, if, if you look at your sort of uh, constitutional history, they, they, they introduced a clause that prevented anyone with foreign, uh, foreign national children, which her children are, to actually hold formal office. Um, and so she's not the president. She was never the president of uh, Myanmar. Um, she's been exercising power, if you like, um, through other means. And that'll continue happening. There's no there's no prospect of her um you know, giving up her. She's very bloody minded. She she showed that with her, you know, with her sort of uh, dissidents uh, in the previous military uh, uh, dictatorship. So she's not going to come to terms with them. They probably will know that. The question really is, do they give up or do they you know, proceed for a year and then ban her from any form of active politics? But it mm. won't be with her acquiescence, that's for sure. No, exactly. Well, certainly one to watch for the next few days. Dr. Ella Mendoza, founder, executive director of the Henry Jackson Society. Thank you very much indeed. Um, there does come a point at which, presumably, um, the West... Uh, in the form of Western Europe, uh, in the form of the US, uh, may have to say uh, that words are simply not enough, depending uh, on whether it becomes a nasty, violent situation in Myanmar. We'll keep you up to date on that throughout the day here and throughout the week, of course, because it could be that this goes on for quite some time. And with China's involvement as well, uh, it doesn't make it very simple to solve.
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. How about this from Jane? She says, hi, Mike. I hadn't seen the report of the Labour front bench and their expenses. Thank you for shining a spotlight on this, especially as so many of their constituents have probably lost everything during the pandemic. Uh, and Pete says, I can solve the MP's excessive expenses claims. Let me sign them. Uh, and uh, I think that's probably what we would all say, because I think there's something definitely wrong with the way the system works. Obviously, we know historically how bad it was. We know from a long time ago that MPs' expenses have been a scandal. Uh, we remember the uh, the moat uh, and the uh, the bird boxes and all the sorts of things that were claimed for, the televisions, the second homes in London, all of that stuff, which inevitably should never have been claimed for. They've changed the system now. Uh, they've supposedly made it a little bit more uh, friendly to the voter. But yet, and still, people can charge money to the taxpayer that I don't believe they should be charging. For example, if Angela Rayner wants to travel first class, particularly as uh, we were hearing from Lee Anderson in this uh, time uh, of, 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 of sparse people working and moving around the country, um, you don't need to go into first class in order to get some space to yourself. What you need to do is obviously uh, to actually uh, just sit on a second class train. Now, what I would suggest, for example, is that if you are going to claim for a, a train ticket, what you do is you claim for a standard class ticket. You do not claim for a first class ticket surely that would be sensible wouldn't it and then if they want to go into first class then all they have to do uh, is pay for that bit themselves they can pay the extra because quite frankly it's becoming harder and harder for people to make a living in this country no wonder these uh, politicians want to continue with all of these lockdowns because of course for them it's not a problem they're getting paid their 100% salary. They're still claiming expenses, even though they're not actually going to work every day. Many of them are working from home. Lee Anderson himself said, you know, they're not going down to Westminster because they don't want to uh, put anybody's lives in danger. They don't want to spread anything around the country. Obviously, they don't all think like that. But at the end of the day, surely to heavens, we ought to be able to have a parliamentary system which is much fairer and much more representative of the ordinary people of this country. Lisa Nandy is a very wealthy woman. She should not be charging us 20 quid for some hand sanitizer. And really, charging your television license as well, Lucy Powell, you should be ashamed of yourself. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. 0344 499 1000. Let's talk now, though, to Anaya Follerin Iman, writer and columnist at Spikes Online, coming to us this morning uh, as a representative of a new uh, organization called Free Speech Champion. She's launching it today. Uh, it's supposed to be uh, in order to safeguard free speech, particularly at universities where so much free speech uh, has been stifled. Um, Anaya, very good morning to you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Not at all. Tell us about this exciting new project, because it feels to me like there's a bit of a kickback now going on uh, as far as uh, those of us who feel that our free speech has been somewhat stunted lately. Yes, absolutely. Free Speech Champions. It's an exciting new initiative set up by myself, but also with a diverse range of university students and recent graduates to really inspire the next generation about the importance of free speech. I mean, we've seen so many challenges and conversations over the last few years about what has been going on, not just on campus, but often in the digital arena and also in workspaces where, you know, whether that's no platforming, you know, safe spaces, censorship. I mean, there was a recent poll um, last year where um, 40% of students feel that they they are self-censoring out of fear of their kind of future career. Mm. 
Mm. We know that university is meant to be the space where, you know, young people get exposed to a broad range of ideas, get to challenge themselves, get to refine their ideas. If they are being kind of exposed to a very narrow set of views, then they are having a much diminished civic and educational life. And I don't think that's very good for society. So Free Speech Champions hopes to create a network of champions across the country who will go out into schools and universities, host events, and, and really spread the word about why free speech is such a fundamental bedrock of our democratic society. Absolutely. So yeah. Because one of the things you, 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 you raise there quite rightly is people do tend to stop talking about certain things, don't they? I mean, I've known uh, people who are friends of mine who have said to me, you know, uh, oh, I don't feel as if I, I can comfortably talk about this even in public, never mind actually at a, at a, a centre of learning, you know, where you would actually sort of take part in a discussion in a, in, a, in a lecture group or something like that. But some people are now saying to me, you know, I don't feel comfortable even talking about this when I'm out in the street. Yes, and, and that is not a, a solid framework to build a society on. You know, free speech, as I said, is the bedrock of a democracy where we get exposed to different ideas, we can challenge one another, we can refine our ideas and understand um, and, and build relationships. And I think it's really having a, a detrimental impact on civic discourse where we've seen so much of this polarization. And, you know, even people feeling kind of compelled to lie, to, to not say things that they believe to be true out of fear of being sacked. And I, I don't think this is healthy right. and so you know free, free speech champions really hopes to be a, a direct response to that so if you're a young person and i want to stand up for free speech check out freespeechchampions.com well, I, and hope, join I, I hope you're going to be visiting leicester university because they were in the news last week were they not i think we made them uh, one of the hits on plank of the week for for basically deciding not to teach chaucer anymore as part of an english literature course on the grounds that you know it was not the right sort of thing to be learning about um and and the 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 guy who's in charge the chancellor or the vice chancellor of that university doesn't call students students anymore he refers to them as citizens for change it's it's really uh, you know shocking to see a, a lot of the kind of uh, activist academics and things like that that that's just one instance we've had so many amber rudd you know for a former mp um what was kind of no platforms we've had we hear this in so many different instances and we're not talking about fringe views here we're often talking about the kind of suppressing of of views that are, are widely held mm. and again if if the university space is meant to be the brain of our society and the, and the institutions that develop the kind of next generation of the intellectual and cultural establishment, if they're not actually having um, an in-depth exposure to a real educational life, then I think that has a really um, detrimental impact on wider society. Yes. And also, if you tell people that they can't say certain things, and if they are uh, perhaps things that are nasty or wrong or uh, politically damaging or personally damaging, you know, they're just going to resent that more. Whereas surely it's better for them to say the things that they want to say and then argue about it. Absolutely. And it's one of the oldest, you know, things in the book. If you suppress something, if you censor it, oftentimes it just moves underground. Oftentimes, you know, it it kind of festers somewhere else because it doesn't stop people from believing things. We want to be able to, in a, in a responsible, in a mature society, be able to grapple with one another, be able to challenge one another, but do it with basic kind of civil values and not in this incredibly divisive, polarizing climate that we currently exist in when it comes to scepticism or dissent or or, or, or views that don't fit a very narrow orthodoxy yes. and so again free speech champions um it really hopes to to be part of something that will really uh, make a really significant impact in this area yeah because it seems unfortunately as though the real world has kind of echoed twitter 
which is the wrong way round as far as I'm concerned. I'd much rather Twitter actually occupied more of the space that the real world is in. But it seems as though that kind of Twitter divisiveness and, and polarisation has now kind of reached out into into the mainstream, if you like. Absolutely. And I think it's much harder, you know, whatever people's views are on lockdown, we, the reality is, is that we have got the decimation of the public square. And so what that means is that often the other spaces, whether that was in the pub or, you know, for some people, if you're religious in, in church or, or even, you know, speaker's corner, mm. these are spaces in the in the real world where we would actually experience human beings in a much, much more in-depth way. And now all we have to rely on to communicate with one another is, is a screen. And that's not a healthy way to really understand who people are and what they think can see them beyond just their kind of political labels. And so I think, um, you know, hopefully we can revivify public life and and the kind of public square Mm. as we open up the country as well. Okay. And if anyone wants to find out more about it, uh, where, where can they go? Where can they find out about it? freespeechchampions.com you don't have to be a young person anyone of all all ages who wants to organise around the defence of free speech please uh, join Free Speech Champions Excellent, well we certainly do that uh, very thing, and I follow Iman there with the launch of Free Speech Champions a great and worthy cause for everybody to get involved in, some people of course make the mistake that free speech is about saying what you like and not facing any kind of consequences, that's not what free speech is, free speech is something that you should be allowed to have But if you say something which is either illegal, uh, which is either libelous or any of those other things which cause damage, basically, uh, you will have to face the consequences. But you should still be allowed to say it. That would be my position. I'm sure that would be lots of other people's position as well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, I'm delighted to say time to say a very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Well, I'm still with us, not dead yet. <laughs> yes, yeah, still fighting the good fight, uh, still managing to get your uh, views out there. Luckily, um, we shall be doing the same later on, of course, uh, this time, hopefully without any uh, interruption, shall we say. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, we apologise for that, basically, because we do edit things from time to time. I'm not sure what happened, but but let's talk about uh, let's talk about Scotland um, and your view that uh, it is already more or less lost to the UK. Well, when the Blairite Revolution happened in 1997, it was, amongst other things, an attack on Britain as a whole and the United Kingdom especially. Uh, It had many, many implications, some of them now being felt in Ireland very strongly as well. Uh, But really, the the whole Blairite idea is hostile to the idea of of Britain uh, as a conservative and rather old-fashioned state, and they always wanted European integration and the destruction and demolition of most of the characteristics of this country and part of that obviously meant that the britain is 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 fundamentally an idea which unites the two countries and was particularly strengthened during the second world war and the the strong wave of united patriotism which which affected both england and scotland of course wales as well at that time and with the weakening of those things the bonds uh, the bonds between the countries we the new labor i think believed that they could have it both ways they thought that they could have a an independent ish scottish parliament but at the same time they could continue to run scotland what they never understood i think was the huge force of scottish nationalism uh, which eventually flattened the labor party and uh, has almost completely crushed all opposition in scotland i don't think that it's now possible for us to prevent a second referendum, and I would be very surprised if that second referendum doesn't vote to leave. And I think the sensible attitude towards this, you said forever in your introduction, I think that it's quite possible that Scotland might come back voluntarily into a union with England, 
But I don't think it will come back if we if we try and block its 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 attempts to leave now. If we if we get our, ourselves into a into a great brawling wrestling match, saying you can't hold a referendum, you can't go, and if we try and patronise them, uh, indeed, as as many people patronise Britain when it sought to leave the European Union, none of that will work. And we certainly shouldn't behave in the way that Spain is behaving towards Catalonia of, of actually using the law and imprisoning people, for goodness sake, who, mm. who, who are trying to get uh, independence there. I say to, to the Scottish people and, uh, and everybody in Scotland who wants uh, independence, I quite understand your desire. In fact, if, if I was Scottish, I might well share it. Uh, but I, I, I wish you weren't going. But since you are going, I wish you the best of luck mm. and would say, if you ever want to come back, you'll be very welcome. We'll leave a light burning. I think that's the only intelligent attitude for people who who hope for a, a, a reunited kingdom at some point to take. And in the meantime, I think we have a lot of work to do in England uh, to try and reconstruct that country. And I think we should be reminded of that. If the, the, one of the things about Scotland is people are very happy there with their nationality and are, are very positive about it in Keelan. And I think that's, that's a good thing. Uh, whereas in England, you hear very little these days of, of, of pride in or in, indeed knowledge yeah. of the country in which we live. I'd like to see us be more proud of it be more knowledgeable about it be, and value much more highly than many great gifts that we've been given. So I, I, I just don't think that uh, taking a hard line, sending the pr prime minister north of the border to tell them not to leave or threatening them with economic punishment or saying it will all go wrong will work. I just, mm. and therefore, I think it's crazy to pursue that line. If you really want in the long-term future to keep relations between England and Scotland good, then let them go if they want to. Uh, wish them luck. And, but as I say, say if, if ever you want to come back, You'd be very, very welcome mm. indeed. I think the trouble is, Peter, that there's a view, I think, that is taken in England of Scotland by people, I'm not suggesting you're one of them, by people who don't know much about Scotland. And I think, I mean, I, I've, my, both my parents are from Scotland. I've worked in Scotland for some time. You know, I, was, I, was, I used to go for Easter holidays every single year there as a child. And I mean, I think I know the Scottish people very well. And it is interesting that England, of all of the nations in the four uh, corners of the United Kingdom, uh, is the most ashamed of itself in terms of its sort of public persona and in terms of what Englishness means and all of that. And you're absolutely right to say that the Scots have a great uh, pride in, in being Scottish. But I think we've made the mistake down here, particularly the political class, of thinking that one, Nicola Sturgeon is doing a fantastic job. Two, everybody thinks she's doing a fantastic job. And three, it is now probably inevitable that almost everyone there wants to become an independent nation. And I don't think that's true. Well, I don't think Nicola Sturgeon's doing a fantastic job. I think she's doing a terrible job. And I think almost all the major aspects of Scottish government, one which particularly concerns me, education, uh, are far inferior to what they would have been 40 or 50 years ago. And they're not making them any better. I don't like the, the existence of a national police force. I, I, I look at Scotland, I see very little sign of an opposition press or indeed an effective parliamentary opposition. These are bad things. I, I do suspect, actually, that if Scotland does leave the United Kingdom, it will pretty rapidly develop an opposition uh, because people will realise the strong need for one at the moment that's being pushed to one side. No, I've got no admiration for, for Nicholas Sturgeon. I also know there are many very, very serious Scottish people who don't want uh, to leave. But I think I, I, I went up during the, the last days of the, of the, of the, of the, of the referendum uh, to areas of Scotland which I, I know. I, my first memories are Scottish. Uh, my father was stationed at the Resyth Naval Base, and I, my earliest memories are of Resyth and of Dunfermline. And I feel very, <coughs> very fondly of, uh, towards Fife and that, that part of Scotland to this day. 
uh, which makes me slightly unusual among English people. I remember Scottish voices before I ever heard English mm. ones. So I, I don't have that sort of, I, I wouldn't call it a prejudice, but a, a sort of feeling of vague, um, uh, how should I say? Detachment almost. Detachment yeah. from Scotland of English people have. Right. I, I feel not at home there, but certainly I've always taken great pleasure in, in visiting Scotland. So and I, I found myself sympathising with some of the particular, the last people I interviewed the night of the referendum vote uh, near a polling station in Resyth were a young couple uh, he, as I recall, was in favour of, of, of leaving and she was in favour of staying. But they were on good terms with each other. Mm. I thought this was a sign of, 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 of optimism and hope. And both of them had intelligent arguments. The most intelligent arguments I heard uh, were in Cowdenbeath from a 70-year-old uh, woman, very stern, strict, beautifully spoken English, obviously very well educated in the old Scottish way. And she, she enunciated all the arguments against far better than I could have done. I felt rather ashamed. <laughs> that I'd uh, I'd been swept up in the in, in, in the, the the idea that maybe it was a good idea, but the, the truth is the people of that generation are becoming a minority and will become a minority. I don't think that can be prevented. Mm. So <clears throat> that's why I think it will happen. Yes, I think, happen, I think I think I think I agree with yeah. I mean, I think I agree with your analysis that the government's um, continued refusal to give a, ref a second referendum is probably wrong. But I think what they ought to do, and this is where I, I differ from you in terms of the inevitability of it, what they ought to do, I think, is explain um, how closely tied the two nations are. For example, the huge number of people who work in the civil service uh, in the tax business alone up in Edinburgh, uh, the business of, of, of the Rosyth Naval Yards, the business of, you know, of Faslane, you know, the defence um, connection there, and what it would really mean uh, for Scotland to be independent, because I think there's a, a kind of a flowery, sense of independence for a lot of people in Scotland, particularly the young who think, who think it's a great idea, but they haven't really thought of what it would actually be like. They think they want to be part of the European Union, and that's now the driver for most of them. But as you were saying, because of Catalonia, I just don't see Europe ever saying to Scotland, you can be an independent small nation within the EU. Well, here's a, a, a difference in that. Now that Britain is not an EU member, uh, that argument has, has, has weakened. What what the EU could have said before was that it, it, secession from an EU member was something they, they couldn't support, and Spain would have been very uh, firm on insisting on that. But uh, secession from a non-EU member may be viewed differently in the Commission, and I think they they, they may be quite keen to see it happen. And uh, it, it also is also the case, of course, that the support for leaving the European Union in Scotland is much lower than in England, and many Scots feel that they've been they've been pulled into something they themselves don't support. Uh, the other thing, people are not actually, uh, they ought to be, but they're not. They don't, people don't vote entirely rationally. They also vote uh, emotionally. And you cannot counter emotional arguments necessarily with, uh, with, with facts and reason, much as I wish it was so. Mm. And the, remember in this case, particularly the, the, the UK's decision to vote to leave the European Union, those who supported that uh, have to recognise that many of them voted, even though they knew and had been told that there would be, and there are, uh, economic disadvantages uh, from leaving, because they thought that independence was more important. You can't take that view of the European Union and tell the Scots that they must vote entirely according to economic rationality, can mm. you? Well, no, I don't think so. But interestingly enough, I mean, I've said this recently uh, a lot, that if uh, there was to be independence granted to Scotland, the SNP more or less would cease to exist because there wouldn't be any point 
in being the Scottish National Party, they'd have to stand for something other than independence and they'd have to therefore look inside their own party and realise actually uh, they're a bit of a hodgepodge of different political uh, philosophies because you're quite right to say that Labour sort of sold the farm, as it were, because they had no clue that they were giving away power. Because, I mean, Labour used to run Scotland like, um, you know, like a trade union runs, used to run Britain, you know. I mean, 48 seats they used to have in Parliament. They practically lost them all. The first First Minister of Scotland was from the Labour Party. But they worked, the, the SNP cleverly worked out that, in fact, the Labour Party had done nothing for the people of Scotland. They just considered a load of safe seats that would get them into government. Oh, the Labour Party were hopelessly complacent. But mm. before them, of course, the, the unionists, who were, who were the Conservative uh, branch in Scotland, had become complacent too. And people forget how hugely they used to dominate the, the, the Scottish representation in Parliament and indeed Scotland as a whole. Um, amazing fact that I was, is, is that the, the Scottish equivalent of the Daily Mirror, the left-wing daily paper, was, um, until quite late on, a unionist newspaper. Yeah. Uh, because that was the, the dominant attitude of Scotland. When you have, when the main issue is, is, is union or not, uh, the ordinary political divisions are squashed, as they also are in Northern Ireland, where, where unionism contains a lot of people who would be in the Labour Party. If they were in England, for instance. So it's it, it, the moment independence actually happens, it's true. I think the, the SNP will begin to break apart. It's already got some pretty severe ructions. I mean, the relations between between uh, Alex Salmon and Nicola Sturgeon are, are, are pretty poisoned, I think. Yeah. And uh, there are plenty of reasons why it might. But I, I think before uh, the achievement of secession, I doubt very much whether that will happen. Labour seems to me to be, to, to be completely dead in Scotland. And the Tories can't really rise beyond a very small, uh, a, a very small segment. So I think that if we want to hope for the development of, of proper two-party politics in Scotland again, almost certainly it won't happen until until Scotland has left the UK, which is a very strange paradox, but it's a yes. last case. Yeah, I don't know if you had a chance to read it at the weekend. Gillian Bowditch wrote a piece in the um, uh, Sunday Times Scottish edition about the farce of this Alex Salmon inquiry. And I think this is quite a key point as well, because I think Nicola Sturgeon is is very much dancing on the lip of a volcano here, because there's an awful lot going on beneath the surface that we can't really see. Um, she's yeah. basically calling for a proper independent inquiry to be done where proper uh, scrutiny uh, is applied, where proper evidence is actually presented. And rather than uh, having all sorts of stuff redacted and held back and withdrawn and denied, yeah. you know, actually, this could be a problem for Nicola Sturgeon. Well, it could. I mean, in my view, I, I have, to have to say, having met him, uh, I, I find Alex Salmon to be one of the most intelligent and thoughtful people in British politics. Uh, he probably wouldn't want to be described as such, but uh, but there it is true. Whereas I find... Nicholas Sturgeon, a pretty pretty cliched and, and, and banal figure, mm. uh, Salmon is very interesting and uh, has a lot of uh, fascinating thoughts on areas way beyond the, the, the national issue. Uh, and I'm surprised that it's been possible, as it were, to keep him away from from the centre of Scottish politics for yeah. so long. And there is a, a a conflict there waiting to erupt. But how it will erupt, I don't know. But probably, as I say, not before. Mm. Uh, the first of all, the the, the much prophesied and I think probably undoubted uh, triumph of the SNP in the coming elections and the resulting demand for a second yeah. referendum. I mean, much of the strength of the uh, of the SNP goes back to Alex Salmon's stewardship of it because he'd worked out very early on that it was much easier uh, to become popular by asking for things you could never get. 
and blaming Westminster yeah. for not giving them. And that was a, a work of genius. And people really became t- to resent the, the Westminster Parliament. And even now, when you see people like Ian Blackford, you know, every single week at Prime Minister's Questions, claiming that Scotland is being denied funds, claiming that Scotland has been starved of resources, which yeah. is completely not the case. Well, nothing's ever your fault in, in these circumstances, is it? You're, it's, it's, it's complete luxury politics, but then the moment comes when it, it is your mm. fault. Um, but also, Alex Stone was very clever in developing a form of nationalism which, which Guardian readers can swallow. Uh, civic nationalism rather yeah. than the, the kind which they tend to associate with... Um, uh, Flag-waving. Flag-waving and all the rest, yeah. yeah. So that, that was also very cunning. Uh, it's, it, this, this, is, this is a project which has not been run by fools. Uh, and by and large, the response of, uh, of English politicians has been pretty fumbling. In fact, I'm still pretty certain that the referendum would have gone in favour of secession last time if Gordon Brown hadn't made his intervention at the last moment, which, mm. I, from what I can see, swung a lot of Labour votes uh, away from independence at the last moment. But, of course, implicit in that was a promise to give an awful lot of, con- of concessions which I think David Cameron pretty much blew fairly shortly afterwards, mm. so the, the, therefore increasing the resentment and the likelihood of secession. It's a big problem, mm. breaking up a country. I watched the Soviet Union break up uh, into its component parts after 1991. Uh, and in fact, oddly enough, uh, horrible though much of the Russian regime is, they didn't handle it too badly compared mm. with, with, with some people, but it, it was gigantic and revolutionary. Uh, and it, it and it can happen. And it wasn't entirely bl- it wasn't entirely bloodless either, was it? Not entirely, no. But it could have been a lot more bloody, I, mm. in my view, than it actually was. And yet, maybe I think the the, the difficulty between Russia uh, and Ukraine is uh, is, is unresolved and uh, could, uh, I'm afraid, break out uh, in the future in fairly horrible ways. And mm. th- these are dangers, uh, which people once you once you start going down that slope, there are dangers. Yeah. The, the the less hostility you engender. The easier you make it to, to, to carry on on good terms, the better, once you've recognised that it's going to happen anyway. Yes. I wonder um, if we could talk a little before we stop about the uh, the lockdown scenario. Okay. I'm seeing this weekend a definite sort of um, step change, if you want, in, in the message, as it were. Um, lots of people now coming out with... Um, facts and figures about education, about the mail story this morning, 350 billion, the cost of, uh, of a lost generation of kids not going to school, mental health on, in the Sunday Times, a study by the Mental Health Institute saying that a quarter of teenagers are now anxious um, and nervous about the future. And also now we're seeing today the Isle of Man uh, list, lifting all the um, restrictions. Yes, well, the Isle of Man is very special. Of course, they can pretty much control entry and exit. And uh, presumably they feel they, if they carry on doing that, then, then they're masters of their own destiny. Mm. We'll see if that's so. I one obviously must wish them the very best of luck and hope it goes well. But it'd be a far different thing trying to do the same thing here if you, uh, if you, if you supported lockdown as, as a method. But what is interesting is the sort of mainstreaming of many of the arguments of lockdown sceptics among people who aren't lockdown sceptics and the increasing recognition of the cost of this, which is simply undeniable, mm. uh, which was not really recognised or taken into account at the beginning. Maybe sooner or later we will move towards the cost-benefit analysis, which has always been badly needed, mm. Whether this is, even, even if you accept. And I, the, the, it seems to me that the evidence for this remains extremely slender. The lockdowns are an effective way of, of, of controlling uh, the disease. Even if, even if you accept that, you have the second argument. Is it even so uh, justified? Is the, the immense cost, the colossal 
damage that we've been discussing and the enormous economic damage which we're building up for the future. Is it worth it? Can it be justified for the effect uh, which you claim to be having? Mm. That's the argument that I would And that, of course, is, is the argument which makes the most sense, isn't it? Because, of course, why would you not look at that? I mean, the idea that they haven't been looking at that is quite extraordinary. I saw a guest on uh, Talk Radio over the weekend talking about the United States experience and how basically most states have got more or less the same figures of death uh, and infection, regardless of whether their lockdown was harsh or not so harsh. And so the the, the inference suggesting, basically, uh, that the lockdown didn't really make any difference to the number of deaths, but what it did make a difference to was the economy. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you, you, here's, you, you'd have to concede the possibility that, that restricting people in their homes might make some difference, mm. though how, you know, how much is, seems to be very hard to measure. Uh, it's a possibility. There's, like I say, the, the evidence that it's had uh, any hugely dramatic effect uh, remains extremely elusive. And the contrast, for instance, between California and Florida, uh, which have taken completely different attitudes with very similar outcomes, is, uh, is yet another illustration of this. The problem for the, the lockdown advocates is that they cannot really come up, uh, if you look around the globe, with evidence that their method has been successful. But the cost of it uh, has been universal. No one, absolutely nobody doubts the cost of it. No. And, and there is the problem. It has cost a huge amount, will continue to do so, materially and in lives and health yes. and education. Well, the SAGE figures that came out of the weekend said that uh, two things, really, um, both of them based on modelling, I suppose. One, that uh, the lockdown could cost the lives of, uh, of 100,000 or more people. But similarly, had the lockdown not happened, there could be another 100,000 dead um, from COVID. But again, um, you know, that's their modelling rather than actual evidence. It's what they think well, would think, have happened. I think there's a growing amount of research. And so this started with uh, some research done part of the University of Loughborough some months ago, and it, it grows all the time, uh, particularly on, for instance, failed cancer treatment and things of that kind, which shows way beyond modelling and speculation uh, that, the, that the measures taken have actually caused deaths and severe uh, restriction of people's lives in a measurable fashion. The claim that the lockdown has saved lives remains completely speculative. Mm. And I think when you're faced with evidence versus speculation, and it's, it seems to me that if you have evidence versus speculation, evidence should win. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And right on uh, time as well, Peter, uh, that concludes our, our, our conversation for the day. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Boris Johnson's uh, out and about at the moment, uh, talking, of course, about this new story which is breaking uh, about some new South African variant um, which has been discovered in parts of Surrey, apparently. Uh, they're going to mass test a lot of people in some parts of Surrey in order to make sure that uh, it doesn't spread too far. I think that seems to be a new um, rollout of the uh, of the testing procedure, uh, but we'll no doubt catch up with that throughout the course of the day here on Talk Radio as and when we get get more information about it but they certainly they seem to be homing in on specific parts of Surrey where they're going to be testing loads of people I don't know if that means they're going to be testing everyone uh, we'll bring you that as soon as we know it right now though uh, it is that time we've had the news at 12 30 time for a bit of homeschooling we've been talking about school children in this hour already uh, and how hard it is for them to do homeschooling uh, and to work at home
home with their parents who are also possibly working from home and it can be a bit of a challenge. So we're trying to help out here, uh, as we have done since last March, by trying to bring you uh, some subject matter uh, which might take you away from the mundane uh, of the day-to-day -day kind of studying uh, of what goes on inside of school. And I'm delighted to say we're going to welcome back Dr Lars Larman, Senior Lecturer in the History of China and Eastern Asia at SOAS at the University of London. Lars, welcome back. Very good afternoon to you. Yes, good afternoon and um, welcome from uh, SOAS, University of London, this time with a Japanese uh, theme, namely the samurai. Yes. And um, yes. So tell me what you know about the samurai. Well, I'll tell you what I know about the samurai. Tom Cruise made a movie about them. Um, yes. I've seen another movie called The Seven Samurai. Um, <laughs> I believe them to be sort of Japanese, ancient Japanese warriors who were held in very high esteem by their fellow countrymen and who were kind of almost an elite breed of, uh, of individuals. Yes, uh, they are as old as Japan is, more or less. Mm. And um, to understand um, the, well, Japan of the past, in any case, uh, you absolutely have to understand samurai culture. But also, it gives you some ideas how Japanese society functions today, mm. because it's very different from, uh, um, from Chinese society, which is based on merit. And merit means passing exams. And the most, um, well, not necessarily the cleverest, but those who are best at uh, actually going through the exams, they will get the best positions in the state. Mm. In Japan, it was always a matter of loyalty. So if you were loyal to your um, regional warlord, as a man bearing a sword, that means a samurai, then uh, you had the best chances of advancing. And that's perhaps why Japanese employees are so absolutely devoted yes. to their companies. Right. So you will not be going home before midnight or even later before you've finished the absolutely last draft. Otherwise, your your uh, master would be getting upset. And this is something that a good samurai does not do. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Japanese culture that we know of over the years has has shown us, for example, you know, workers going to a factory and, and almost having like a school assembly before they start work and kind of almost <laughs> pledging allegiance to the, to the company boss. And they've got a great sense as well of of shame, haven't they? And of uh, of, of sort of taking responsibility for things that have gone wrong. I seem to remember a few years ago there was a was there not a case of a, of a toy manufacturer I think that that had produced a toy that was very dangerous and and I think the the the, the, the head of the company um, I think he might have killed himself. I mean they took they, they take it all very very seriously, don't they? Absolutely, and I mean this uh, has again a lot to do with the um, uh, bushido. It's if you get a chance to look up the term. Uh, that's the way of the warrior. And that mm. means that if you bring shame on um, your master or his family or the entire uh, unit which you work in or which you belong to, mm. then um, there is the ultimate way out by uh, namely disemboweling yourself. You right. take a sword, sword, which exists almost for that purpose. You go into your bowels and then you... Um, move the sword in a certain way so that all your um, intestines are uh, cut up and you bleed to death. Wow. And that's a guaranteed way out. And that's, but, Harry, yeah. that's Harry Kiri, as we know, is it? That's Harry Kiri, that's right, yes. Yeah. But anyway, um, let, let's not um, over-dramatise uh, what these samurai <laughs> are, because, um, I mean, they were, um, <clears throat> of course, the backbone of the uh, fighting forces that the daimyo, so the large um, regions military regions, you could call them, uh, in Japan had, because Japan is only very recently, as of 1600 roughly, a unified state. Before mm. that, you had 
attempts at forming uh, kingdoms, but it, it never really went beyond the symbolical. But from the Tokugawa onwards, so 1600 um, over the Meiji, so and then into the modern period, uh, you had um, a continuous central government. When the central government rose, the role of the daimyo and the samurai declined. And this is ultimately why during the Meiji reforms, the um, samurai were abolished as a class. Mm. But before that, they were very much the um, aristocracy of the, um, let's call it a feudal system yes. that in Japan. Because I was going to ask uh, Lars if they were sort of like knights uh, in in in, the, in in England at the time when they were kind of given the right to be a knight, they might have got land with 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 the title. They might have been considered to be, as you say, part of the aristocracy. And were they a sort of appointed by the emperor, as it were? Uh, no, they were uh, appointed by the. I mean, the actual knights were the 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 daimyo and the shogun. Shogun is a, um, a commander, and the commanders they were. They worked in unison with the with, with the emperors. That's true. But the daimyo, they were old feudal overlords who who were the equivalent of the uh, the knights that you would have had in um, in Europe. Mm. But in um, the role of a samurai, you would support the daimyo. So in other words, they were support warriors, and they had usually no land. And in fact, in the last couple of hundred years, they were very poor. So they. Um, often did not have more than a sword <laughs> and they, they sold their services to the uh, the best bidder right and were they wearing particularly different clothing were they wearing a particular dress because when you see the traditional kind of japanese warrior they seem to be wearing a particular kind of sort of tunic if you like yes and that was absolutely vital otherwise in a battle situation you would not have been able to distinguish them and then, of course, it's the uh, the flags that the um, uh, th that they were carrying into battle, and uh, often a small, not not even uh, the, the written characters that you can see. They, they those they also existed, but uh, little symbols which they would have understood and their enemies would have understood. Okay, and if you were born um, to it, as it were, could anybody be born to it, or did you have to come from a certain part of society? Uh, it was a class. So it was uh, almost as if you were part of a, um, a warrior caste, mm. which um, made sure that your um, successors followed in your footsteps. But uh, there were ways of um, uh, leaving this, and especially during the uh, Edo phase, so the last um, uh, three, four hundred years of, uh, uh, of Japanese uh, history, um, the temptation to become a merchant were enormous. So mm. why live in poverty if you can actually make quite good money in the biggest city on earth and um, um, many of the daimyo lived in really although they had impressive castles they lived in really poor areas mm. and uh, this is something that we shouldn't forget we shouldn't um, well uh, nostalgia is always a good thing but uh, we shouldn't over romanticize the uh, the role of the samurai yes and would you say that, that I mean I presume there's no samurai left as such is what what what, what happened to them in the end the, well as a social class, they were disbanded in the late 19th century. But um, the important thing is that the samurai spirit lives on. And those family who had a, a, a samurai in the family, they they treasure that. So mm. that's a um, qu quite positive thing. Uh, there's something else, and I have to say that before we end the program. Um, 
the role of the samurai is closely related to that uh, of uh, Japan as a nation, mm. because um, there are few collective things that keep Japan together. Of course, the Japanese language, fair enough. But then uh, the, there is no continuous state that actually takes you back to day dot, uh, as in China, for example. Um, so um, what they had instead was the um, the historical fact and the myth that grew out of it when in the 13th century um, the Mongols tried to invade Japan. Mm. They um, met two enemies. The first was the sacred storms, the sacred wind, kamikaze. Kamikaze, you've heard before. Yes. And, um, and then secondly, the samurai. So both the gods of Japan and the warriors of Japan defended the island against uh, the attacks of the almighty Khan. Mm. So this is why uh, Genghis Khan never really got to Tokyo. As simple as that. Right. Well, I suppose somebody had to stand up to him eventually. And they're quite a warrior nation, Japan, really, aren't they? I mean, they've got a very interesting history. I've not been there, uh, but I know people who have been there and they find the culture there to be very, very different, really, from anywhere else in the world. Yes, they're very disciplined. Mm. And um, of course, that helps. Um, it, it's not that much of a warrior society. Actually, the, the bigger imprint uh, is probably made by uh, Zen monks <laughs> who mm. also have a very strict sense of discipline. Um, and um, uh, I think this, they influenced the samurai rather than the other way around. So this um, almost monastic atmosphere that you get uh, in uh, samurai dwellings, uh, it reminds me directly of uh, the Buddhist... Um, um, well, monasteries that you have in Japan. Yes. And um, of course, that also goes back roughly to the same area, uh, sorry, era, mm. as um, uh, when um, uh, the uh, Japanese samurai stood up against the Mongols. Yes. And is their society in Japan now still very much based on Buddhism still? Yes, although you have other religious ideas as well, but um, it's, I think the ethics are very much based on Buddhism, although, of course, from the late 19th century onwards, you have this um, uh, Japanese type of uh, uh, worship of the local spirits, Shinto, which means uh, the, the way of the, um, uh, of the spirits of the, well, saints of Japan, if you like. Mm. And um, that blended together with Buddhism in order to form something that's quite uniquely, uniquely uh, Japanese. Yes. Fascinating stuff. Dr. Lars Larman from SOAS at the University of London giving us the lowdown on the samurai uh, and what they were and how they came to be. Uh, fascinating country, Japan. I've always wanted to go there, funnily enough, but so far uh, I haven't managed it. Who knows if you'll ever be able to manage it now? I mean, God, when can I get a plane at some point? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.